0: so I've been reflecting on why I do this podcast I do it because I'm a teacher I'm an artist I'm inquisitive I sincerely want to know the answers to these questions but mostly because I I feel like By creating this podcast, it tries to assist in making it so that we're not all alone in these problems. There are many issues in the arts world and in the art market that we don't talk about, that we don't learn about, we don't discuss and get better at. We don't get the feedback we need to be more successful. And I want to help not just myself, but everybody else that's listening to this, to be more successful. I want to remove the idea of starving artists from our lexicon. I don't want artists to have to be starving anymore. I want to make sure that we all can be successful. If We can't strive for some amount of success together. We're going to have problems doing it by ourselves. Too many people in the arts world think that it's a sort of an individual process, and it's not. It takes a group of people, many people, supportive people, helpful people, constructive people, and I wanna try and connect you with some of their knowledge, some of their insights, some of their abilities, possibly even to them, so that you can learn and get better and grow and learn from my mistakes. Everybody shouldn't have to make mistakes in order to learn, but Hopefully through either my mistakes or their mistakes, you can learn to avoid things or to work more in a particular direction in order to be more successful easier. Easier than I had it, easier than they had it. And that we all can do better. And we all can be better, especially in these tough times right now with the unknown future of the arts world. You need to try and get creative Try to learn from each other instead of be competition. I know I can't be in your studio and you can't be in mine, at least not very easily, but we can still learn from each other and try and get better because an artistic career is a lifetime. And if you have any questions that you want me to ask guests in the future, some very particular things, some unique things that only you're going through, please feel free to send me an email or a message on social media. And I'll be sure to include it when I have a guest who could give a helpful answer to you. Enjoy. Please pronounce your name correctly for me.
1: (laughs) Michal Novotny.
0: And you currently are the director of contemporary and modern art at the National Gallery of Prague, correct?
1: Correct. Which, however, means post-war.
0: Post-war. So
1: post-1945, more or less. The selection is being done artist by artist, whether the core of their work was prior the war or after the war. So more or less, it's something more like 1942, 1943. But it means more or less in the context of the museums that have collections of post-war. So I am not responsible for the 20s and 30s. So for something that is called like some classical modern nitty, let's say. Uh,
0: The art world loves sort of putting us in little pigeonholes and niching us into different little things. So this is just another one. It's fine. Yes. So one of the first things actually I like to hear about is how did you get into being creative in the first place? So were your parents creative? Did you have some teacher, some experience? Like how did you even find your creative path coming down
1: yeah it's a complicated question also as i teach nowadays on the academy of art architecture and design i see of course mainly artists are coming from a certain background if you are from a working class you don't very often have the idea to even become an artist not speaking about the resources needed but i'm actually from a sort of working class family. So maybe it was some kind of inner pulsion that I was always enjoying on some art forms, whether it be literature or movies when I was a teenager. But the real impulse was that I fell in love. When I was 20, I fell in love with an artist. And she was older than me, and she was already professional or working professionally. So she also introduced me to a lot of things in the contemporary art. Before I was not exactly specialized, I studied philosophy, so I was studying the general part of it.
0: If you don't mind me asking, how old are you now?
1: I'm 35.
0: Oh, you're young. Okay. (laughs) I'm 46. So
1: It's always a question of point of view. (laughs) 35 starts to be the for artists specifically, no more young. You cannot reach to most of the grants and prices They are limited by this age.
0: I know. I got to Europe when I was 44 and I started very quickly learning that in Europe, 35 seems to be the age cutoff for yeah. young and emerging artists kind of thing. Yes,
1: exactly. Curators have a difference a bit. I think it's easier at the beginning because, of course, just from... The very position you get some sort of power because you are the one who gets to choose but then the later on in your career it's more and more about politics you know nobody is looking so much to find good curators while all good curators are looking to find artists so as an artist you can be discovered and you can be found but as a curator it's mainly about how well you manage to navigate yourself in the system
0: I want to hear more about that. What you just said, I that that's a fascinating topic. Like, so a like, how do you find artists? So for your own, either because you, you've done lots of work, you have been super productive. Your CV is incredibly impressive. I must say, by the way, you know you worked at Futura. You've done international studies. You've done residencies. You've done all kinds of really great stuff. So. When you, as a curator, how do you find new artists? And then, of course, like playing that political game later on in your career, like how do you, you know, because you went from a sort of a nonprofit organization now to a governmental organization. So, like, how, why did that transition happen? And was it good, bad, did it difficulties, easy? So, I start with the artist.
1: Yeah, a lot of people always ask me, how do I find my artist? <laughs> through many channels, I still believe in exhibitions. Like lately, of course, since I work at the National Gallery, less, but I was visiting, of course, enormous amount of exhibitions before. I was traveling extensively and when, wherever I would go, I would see as much as I could. And it was always, but it's also generational i think my students are not at all like that because they have all the informations at hand so they're more scared by the information they're overwhelmed by the information they're not looking at much and even as a teacher you need to give them just a bit you know very precisely chosen selected curated information knowledge literature artworks and so on but me i'm still from the generation where we were hungry for art and for information so i was like extensively going extensively seeing shows reading magazines watching online. But I mean, after all, after a while, maybe 10 years or so, you kind of get the image and you don't need to do it that much. then of course, after again, another generation come and you lose. (laughs) You lose the sensitivity, you lose a bit the image, you lose a bit the map that you built. But most of the people, of course, remain within their generation. What is a bit specific also now for my position that I work with really big age gap. My students are 22 and I work with artists that are 80 or 90 years old. And I see more and more how big this gap is between the generation. How there is starts to be even gap between me and my students because I'm no more that spontaneously getting what they mean because they don't know what they're meaning. They are doing it, but they don't understand really what they're meaning. But then in a, in a frame of opinions of whatever, of course, the gap between the 80 or 90 years old and the young ones is enormous. It's almost not to understand. or the, the, Even the kind of terminology, what comes to art and life is really so different. So I think that the main point after you once made the image of a generation is to be able to make the other generation to kind of keep track of what's going on in the young generation and at the same time deepen the connections with the older artists. But it's also, it's intuition as well. I, of course, I always choose, in a sense, intuitively. So I believe in the work somehow, like the recent exhibition I did of Kurt Gebauer here, which is a large retrospective that closed just one week after we opened it because of the pandemic situation. It was also a lot of intuition. I feel that there was something that he did in the 70s and 80s that was really exceptional, even in the international way. So I'm trying to show it. But also I'll need to also calculate that this exhibition needs to have some visitorship, uh, let's say, among the white public. Yeah? It cannot be only for the specialists or only for my students who are already in their stuff, because I work at the governmental institution. So it's always the point how to make everything like work together, and especially from the curator point of view, how to make the work of artists look better. Yeah? what I see mainly as a role of curator, uh, not to choose who is good, but to be actually able to make anyone better. It's kind of, I I even said several times that I see it as a kind of public lawyer. Like, I can get any case and I will try to do my best. Of course, there is some ethical (laughs) ethical limits to who I work with, but I am not, I'm trying specifically not to choose. Like, or see i'm trying not to pay so much attention to my kind of idea of what is the best but rather what is the best in, within a certain context of our time of our space etc etc
0: that's a very interesting perspective to take on curating the idea that you're given an artist or you choose an artist and then it's your role to convince us the, of their Worthiness or whatever you want to put to it, like that's that's nice. I like that. So you also teach?
1: Yes, I teach
0: as an assistant
1: in a painting studio, but it's not a painting studio anymore. Nobody's painting there. Let's say forty percent are painting, but it's open. But it's again, I don't teach like um, I don't teach them so much theory, even though I try to teach them. But it's mainly about speaking. Uh, We're meeting and we're speaking about their work. And the main point is usually just if they really manage to achieve what they presume to achieve, uh, both formally and content-wise.
0: Well, I mean, that's a big issue. This is something that I talk about on this podcast quite frequently is is the making beautiful objects, performances, whatever, a piece of art – Reasonably comes somewhat easily to artists because we've chosen the profession. We've, that's our vernacular that we've chosen to express ourselves in. And then the need to also be able to talk about our art or write statements about our art, oftentimes we find to be exceptionally difficult for us.
1: Sure. But I mean, of course, there is also some, but it was also, there was a time where maybe this was okay. Yeah, it's also the professionalization of art, that everything becomes much more competitive, right? I mean, and really more and more early on, what we also witnessed the last years, that there were certain kind of limits that were given, which were damaged, because some artists, for example, very young artists could not have, until very recently, large institutional exhibitions. It's only the last decade where this rule was sort of abolished. And we see very young artists, 23-year-old artists, who are doing huge museum exhibitions, which was never before the case. But so on one hand, there is, of course, this professionalization, also the quantification. Of course, we're all doing more and more. This is, of course, I've been doing a lot, Maybe even too much. Yeah, a question, because the more we are doing, the more we are also losing it. Yeah? Because everything accelerates with the fact that you know, and with exhibitions, it's also special because there is no, you know, there is art history, but there is not much curatorial history or ex- history of exhibitions. It doesn't exist so much. So exhibition has this, it's this specific format that you do and. It ends and it's over. <laughs> and you know, you cannot really show it. You have of course documentation, you may have a catalogue, but you see it's really something that was really based in this time. Eh? If you do an artwork, most of the time you can keep it, you can re-exhibit. And it also within the system that we are all operating, there are some people interested in it because they want to rewrite the history. But the exhibition is a bit something else. But I also like this element of the ephemerality. Eh? That some projects I did they're already gone and, and somehow nobody will see them anymore right? even if that has been a lot of effort and work yeah but i think that maybe the things got lately a bit too fast everywhere and that's also why maybe also within the last one month and a half and so on i'm not the only one who is also requesting questioning this quantification and the speed we were all into but again i don't think so much that it will change it would need to be much longer for the system to change structurally most probably will just get back to the same insanity rhythm as we had before because it is in a sense uh, kind of, it got also professionalized in the sense of a sport. It's really a question of performance. You need to kind of keep yourself well, you need to be really giving a lot of you. This romantic idea of some sort of drunk artist uh, creating fantastic painting in a cellar is gone. You need to be flexible, you need to be beautiful, you need to be available, you need to speak language, you need to be smart, you need to explain well your work, charm the people, have a lot of network. So there is a lot more than the actual art. But probably this has always been the idea that we're judging art because of some kind of internal essence that is good is a bit artificial. And this is also one of the reasons why I'm actually trying to restrain myself in this regard because I'm not, I wouldn't dare to claim that I know something better than the other know, yeah? Because this would also mean that the art has some kind of in, inner core that it's of good quality or bad quality while we very much know that it's mainly the infrastructure that creates the quality. If you put something in the museum, people look at it very differently than if you have it in a small gallery. Yeah? And... The way the system is working, that of course the capital is creating the quality, yeah? and not only the, this kind of autonomy of art. So the way the art has constituted itself in the mid 19th century, which is something very specific and unique, that we claim for this autonomy, that we don't need to sell the art. Nobody needs to like it, and it still can be great. Even the contrary, most of the time we agree that the art that has didn't sell at all and nobody liked it was actually finally the best is very good idea, but it's never been entirely accomplished. I would even say maybe not even half accomplished.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you covered a lot of topics there. So, yes. Yeah. Well, um, Okay, back to teaching. So, are you, you're currently te- How long have you been teaching?
1: For three years. I've been teaching occasionally before, but regularly for three
0: years. Well, because I've been a professor for off and on about almost 20 years, and and I'm a bit disillusioned by the current state of academia. Um, Of course, I keep in mind I come from America, and I was teaching in the Middle East, and now I'm here in Prague. And it's, I mean... Teachers are treated generally very poorly as far as like their incomes and their, all these kinds of things. Like, I know here in the Czech Republic, they pay horribly to teachers, <laughs> um, but there's a, a great uh, respect for teachers. So, like, they, they have a certain level of esteem, but they are generally very broke.
1: So, that's definitely, I mean, you, you cannot live, of course, on it. It's only a side job, let's say.
0: Well, I did it full time for 15 years, but not here. That's the
1: thing. Yeah, exactly. In here, it's not, I mean, again, the way it's designed, everybody needs to have something else, or you would need to live very, very modestly. I would say it's maybe half of the average salary.
0: Right. So, as a teacher, like, I feel like the current state of academia is not preparing young the next generation of artists for the reality of the world that they're going to go into you know we're not training them enough on things like what you do which is fabulous which is you know how to talk about your artwork how to write about your artwork how to do this kind of stuff which will help them greatly in doing things like writing for grants getting residencies all these other things which these days are the things that they need to be able to achieve And I don't feel like that that's a a huge thing industry-wide in academia.
1: Sure, but I would say that it's also a kind of... But contemporary art is full of contradictions, right? But one contradiction, the main is that we are also pretending that they will all become professional artists, while in reality 95% of them will not become professional artists. And probably 80% or so will stop within two years after they finish their degree. So that's also one, that's already one thing. Eh? But that we're still kind of aiming on this idea of you will do only art while it's impossible. But there is also something um, which I'm thinking a lot lately that, that the art has kind of liberated itself from the crafts. Uh, of course, throughout already the 20th century, it liberated itself a lot f- from a lot. Yeah, The way the academy was established or the way the academy was functioning in the 20s, 30s, was that the students were in the studio and they were, you know, painting or sculpting and the teacher, I mean, all day long, more or less, and the teacher would be going around and saying, please do a bit less here on the elbow or you see, when I painted here a bit deeper, this was the academy, basically. Right? And this was the master teacher system that we're still having here, a studio with like one or two master teachers. And then the liberation sort of happened, liberation uh, in the 90s, but the system remained the same. <laughs> so we even get to the point where we're actually not teaching them anything right? because we removed the sort of, you know, content of the teaching while meaning, you know, to learn how to do anatomy, to learn how to do this, this, this and that. And we kind of, they arrive and we sort of treat them directly as an artist, yeah? because we give them the freedom, yeah? again, in quotes. and But this freedom is unbearable for many, yeah? because they arrive from a high school and we tell them, okay, so so next week, can you bring something you're working on? And they're like, I don't, I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do. You know, the freedom is is very unbearable. It's very difficult to be here if if you don't get any structure. And of course, we're trying to help them. And in the sense, this can be also good, but let's say that not for everyone. And maybe we, as as it's very often in the society, we kind of remove the content, but we we let the structure exist. The structure that was entirely tied to a complete different set of content.
0: Not only that, but like we don't teach them the realities of being an artist. I mean, in this day and age, the realities of being an artist are that you also have to, A, you have to create amazing work in whatever way that is. B, you have to understand why you made it so you can write eloquently or speak eloquently about it. And then C, you have to run it like a business Because, I mean, if at the least you just have to keep up with your inventory or make sure you're not going over budget and all these kinds of things. Like these, it's a lot of these business things that we don't prepare them for enough.
1: Sure. Sure. I mean, again, of course I try, I mean, because I'm in this, but the question again to which it's, it's also a question of capital, like to start a business, you need to have some capital. And if you don't have the capital, it's complicated. How long they will, how, I mean, more and more. And again, unfortunately or fortunately, the way the the art of maybe last 50 years has constituted itself is the, based on the speculation model. You are investing money and, of course, the question is how many years you can last. And you're expecting by earning years and years and years nothing that at the end you will get it all back and much more. Eh? But of course, majority of the people don't have the capital to survive 10 years without any income, 15 years without any income. And I think this is the absolute minimum you need to count before some revenues will go back. Uh-huh. And then also the the other contradiction in the system is that what, what becomes to be the rule is that the winner takes all, uh, in a sense. But at least before there was some sort of, maybe I'm romanticizing it, but I think there was some sort of possibility to sell some artwork for some artists because if you were doing some painting, you could I don't, pay your rent potentially while painting the person or giving him landscape or something. But as, as we kind of, mainly in the 70s in America, as we dematerialized the art object, it became the same sense as the currency. It's only a question of speculation. There's no real value. And this also led to the fact that the the art, some artworks are actually extremely expensive, right? so the artists who sell are extremely expensive and really even unbelievably expensive. But the rest, the ninety nine percent, doesn't sell nothing. Yeah, so it's either or again. Right, it's not kind of surviving. It's either you you make it or you die for, on the way. This is also something that is not really great, but we ourselves constituted the system. eh? It's not that somebody imposed it on us.
0: As far as my perception is, you you, in your role as the curator are often the, the gatekeepers of a lot of the accessibility. So oftentimes I find that an artist is introduced to a gallery via a curator or um, a gallery will elevate an artist to an institutional level again through a curator so like the curators uh, seem to be a lot of the sort of focal points so like everything funnels down to a curator that can somehow get you to the other side as, as a creative person
1: Maybe it's, again, a bit overestimated. Eh? I mean, the creators need to be...
0: I give you all a lot of power, yes.
1: <laughs> I need to make accounts with anybody else in the system. The people need to sort of appreciate of what I'm doing. Eh? And again, the higher, or let's say on the wider scale and wider reach, such as in large institutions, it's very often also securing the funding, sort of. You cannot just exhibit anybody you want because you think his work is great, but more and more, many or even majority of large institutions are from more than a half depending on private funding. And this private funding is again very often provided by galleries or by collectors who already collected this artist's work. So, So it's sort of even more balancing between providing something that you really believe it's good in the artistic sense, but that you can also manage to raise money for to be able to do it. Eh? So there is a lot of things, and even even on the smaller level, you you still depending on the sense that you need to convince the other people that what you who you're working with on what you're showing is good.
0: Well, and that's a question that I have had about museums all over the world is uh, like, how do? the programs get created, you know? So like literally if you're sitting in your office, you can choose to exhibit or create an exhibition revolving around a concept of anything in the world. So how do you even start the process of whittling down any topic and any artist in the world down to what you end up presenting in your institution?
1: Maybe again, it's, Like in any other business. (laughs) There is, of course, the possibility to do any sort of business. But any sort of business you want to enter, you need to get an image of what the others are doing. If they're selling pizza on every corner, it might be difficult to open another pizza. You need to really do well the pizza. So, of course, you're looking what the other museums are doing and maybe where is the sort of gap in the market that you can do something that will work. This is the main the main thing, I mean, or not the main thing, but the first thing, Let's say, yeah? because the main thing is to manage to pass the project through all the other guidekeepers, which are not only financial, but also other curators and boards of trustees and all, all these sort of things which un- allows you, because in many institutions, you don't have really the power to sort of say, okay, let's do that and do it. Yeah? This needs to be approved by so many people that it's a very long process.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, just to clarify this for the listener, so you work for the National Gallery of Prague, which is a, I'm not even perfectly clear on it, so it's funded by the government, is that correct?
1: It's funded by the government, but let's say that in our case, it's a a bit more than 60% of the operational budget. So we need to find somewhere 40%. eh? And of course, from the 60%, I don't know, 55 is mandatory (laughs) costs yeah because uh, so mainly uh, all the budget for the exhibitions and other programs uh, needs to be raised and this is of course not only sponsoring but we are managing to 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 earn money or create money ourselves because we are renting the spaces etc we're providing services we're also selling the tickets of course that is so it's a big revenue, etc., etc. Yeah, but let's say even in a, in a country where everything is still so... or let's say where the wealth is reorganized by the state, yeah, where mainly it's about paying taxes and state give it back to the people, it's not happening out of the state like in the United States, where the sponsorship is mainly private because due to the tax deduction and so on, there is no tax deduction on art in, in, in Czech Republic. Even in, in this context, still 40% needs to be kind of earned by on a free market, let's say, are not given to the institution.
0: As a, as a curator who works at an institution in this kind of structure, do you also have to uh, play the role of fundraiser as well for your own sort of projects or for the whole museum as a whole? Or is there sort of a separate fundraising arm?
1: There is a sort of separate fundraising arm which I think again in this sort of setting that we have here should be, because it it is also problematic if, for example, you're creating an exhibition of a largely collected artist, and most probably of course the donors will be people who have already works of those art, of these artists in their collection then of course they will want those works to be exhibited in this <laughs> exhibition because it adds value to it. Yeah? So there should be some sort of division. Yeah? But again, it's not everywhere the same, but in here I don't need to personally raise money even though of course I need to take part in the fundraising events, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. But I don't need to be the one who gives the check <laughs> to be signed or let's say to give the hat for the money to be put inside. Yeah?
0: Oh, I'm yeah. I'm just wondering, like you know, as as larger institutions sort of pare down their their um, employees and stuff. It's sort of like who ends up having to do more than what their original job description was. So I was just wondering if it your job as a curator potentially had also then sort of made that not only do you have to curate, but you also have to seek funding for your own projects.
1: Yes, maybe other institutions, it's more. But again, yeah, the idea that I am curating <laughs> is in reality that from, and it was even before when I work in a kind of larger non-profit organization, that 80% of my time I'm doing a management position, and then maybe 20% and even more out of the working hours, I can sort of do some sort of creative artistic work. Yeah? But... As again, anywhere else, there is mainly a lot of administration management. I have seven people working for me. There is a lot of invoices I need to also sign, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, again, it's not that I'm reading books and, you know, (laughs) and writing text, unfortunately, but mainly I am sipping
0: coffee, smoking cigarettes, just hanging out in the coffee shop. Yeah. Yeah,
1: no, and even in the National Gallery, as it's really a lot exposed now not but prior to the uh, lockdown i used to have usually like three to five appointments a day with whatever for projects that are running for people who coming from outside who want something for you know just accumulate
0: one thing that was brought up earlier that I found sort of an interesting idea is the the nature of like, you can't just pick something out of the air. You need to think of like, what will the public be interested in? So there, So like, how do you negotiate that balancing act of you want to put on something amazing, something that fills in that gap of what other institutions are not doing, but it also needs to have some amount of accessibility. Like, it seems like, there's a lot a sort of a movement to not be quite so intellectual and over the top and sort of elitist and pompous so like you kind of have to find a balancing act of something amazing that may, that fills the hole that the, the other institutions aren't doing but that also has an attractive quality to the general public
1: yeah it's again some sort of intuition of course but again i would say that i am more thinking or which is even more difficult, I'm more thinking in some sort of dramaturgical lines. Eh? I'm not thinking about individual projects or I'm not thinking about, let's say, one exhibition. I'm thinking about what is the dramaturgy of Trade a Palace. So Trade a Palace has four balconies, one large exhibition space. There is the small hall, there is the large hall. So I'm kind of thinking how to within the financial limits, within the capacity limits of the people working in here, and with all the obstacles, how can I sort of fill this up that we have as large spectrum as possible so that we have something accessible that can kind of help us to earn some money on the tickets, but we have also something that is for the art scene or that is for the artists to help, that it's more specialized, that we have something from this generation that is older, but also from the young people, so, kind of, my aim is always to do as large as you can to fill the sort of spectrum proportionally to the cost and so on. Right? So, this is, I would say, is maybe the res- recipe that kind of worked for me so far. Right? It's not to follow one line; but to follow more lines, both what comes local, international, different generations, but also the accessibility and so from the kind of art for the white public to the art for the art scene.
0: That's good. I like the balance. It's nice, because it could easily f- go one way or the other too easily.
1: Yeah. yeah. And then, but of course, it's a it's a gamble. Yeah, you don't know. But I mean, you don't know how many people will come. You never know. Even if you're organizing concerts, you may bring a star. I don't know. Will be rainy or something? People won't come. You're, so even in the art also, you you can only predict. You can think, okay, this will work for the people, and then. Again, it's a question of PR and campaign and et et cetera, et cetera. But you cannot really know exactly. You can just presume. Oh, yeah. And even some things that you think are quite on the artistic side can work finally.
0: It's a tough, I mean, the entire industry is built on like faith. And, and, a, and a prayer basically like we all hope that what we're doing whether we're producing art or whether we're putting on gallery exhibitions or putting on institutional exhibitions that we just hope that people will see it like see it understand it and want to engage in it.
1: When we did giacometti for example which was an extremely ambitious project mainly to the financial cost it were astronomic it was not really working on well the first months. But finally, it really got super boosted the last month and we reached the sort of line we wanted, which was 50,000 visitors. So you you never know. Yeah? But again, I think that Giacometti also may be in another country and so on, would work even better. Yeah? But again, for example, Czech Republic has also the specificity that people are more going for the Czech artists or they are going for the international superstars, but it won't be the same. Yeah? Like, like you can get more entries with a Czech artist than with someone like Giacometti.
0: Really? Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. I was there on first day for Giacometti. I thought that was magnificent.
1: Okay, thank you. But uh, but we are a bit enclosed. So, yeah, I think also you can see I think with the shutting down the borders, it's also a sort of expression of... Of the mentality, or some remainers of the mentality, at least subconsciously. So there is always this small nation has complex relation to the you know big events, but also to the big artists and so on.
0: And you used to work at Futura, which is the nonprofit organization here in in Prague as well. And they do, they have a very good international range of artists coming and participating. Was the sort of the turnout and the excitement difficult for international artists versus local artists there as well?
1: Yes, Futura was specific in this sense, but it was really something else. It's very specialized. eh? It's, It's more research center. Again, I was always, saying as it's really somewhere between rest. there is some aim for the popularity of course but it's still really on the art side yeah. and then we were running of course a big uh, residency program so artists were coming to prague there is of course big differences within the i mean among the cultures so yes the Czech people are not the most warmest to welcome anybody i would say so of course sometimes it's it's a bit uh, not going super well, but I don't know. But on the other hand, Prague is so charming city and uh, the life is, in a sense, so comfortable in here that at the end, also the artist life, because there's a really lot of, lot of quality program in here, the amount of activities that happens from the small spaces to the big spaces is enormous for the country. and So there was not, it was not so problematic. And then I think that it's a bit the same, of course, for the Czech people when they go abroad, yeah, that we are, but we also suffer from this, we feel very self-conscious. Yeah, we feel very like under and we, we have problems to, 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 to behave normally because this often leads to arrogance as well. Right? I think Czech people are very arrogant, even though if they don't mean it. Yeah, but in the sort of international relationship where a kind of politeness and warmness is just part of the working ethos, we can be perceived very arrogant.
0: That's fascinating to me because I've found that oftentimes the the Czech mentality is to attempt, now it might be a false sense of this, but they attempt to come off as humble. But that might be actually like to yeah, compensate for the arrogance maybe.
1: Yeah, But there is a sort of but but it's also like, it's very contradictory. I see it even in in here in National Gallery and so on the way foreigners are received, even if with international collaboration, it's always either it's very adorative or it's very suspicious. Yeah? Like so it's it's specific. But again, we have a long history of being invaded by whoever and being under the rule of whoever. So it has a certain roots of course but one would say that 30 years after we are sort of part of the europe it changed but it didn't but again let's look on poland let's look on hungary and so on it's the wall it's a problem of the wall block
0: oh yeah my wife is czech so like i hear a lot of this and i have this debates and conversations quite frequently
1: yeah but maybe so it happened to my wife for example it's very often happened that people kind of don't believe she lives here always asking oh you're here still and she's like i'm living here (laughs) so but so quite well expressed that that it's not that they want to be unnice it's not that they don't want her here but they don't even believe that someone could like choose to live in here because we so much self-perceive the country as not like the best place you want to live like you want to live in london or you want to live in paris where she's from but why would you go and live in prague so this is this this Sort of that we don't even believe in, in, in us, which then can lead to the rudeness.
0: All right, that's an interesting perspective on it. Yeah, all right. Don't get me wrong, I'm an American, everybody thinks we're rude, so uh, i accustomed <laughs> to it.
1: I would actually say that you are yeah, over polite, yeah? even, but at least again, the people I worked with from the United States, it's, it's really. Uh,
0: we do a, a lot of we use a lot of words like could and and please and would you and we're, we are very um, yeah polite i guess is the easiest word for it About, like we don't make demands we we don't make stern statements we we always ask with uh, sort of open ended like could we do this or you know would you like to do that and um, it sometimes it comes off as overly flowery Yes,
1: exactly. But again, of course, and I am not saying, you know, that for for Czech people this can be perceived as hypocritical. uh, But on the other hand, it's just I don't know. Maybe again, better if someone smiles at you artificially than if he's honestly rude to you. Yeah, in a sense, like it's also a certain. It's it's nicer to work (laughs) in this surround and here, everybody's like. Uh, I don't have the time.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, w- and that goes to something about the arts again. And like, is that I keep hearing stories basically that no matter what you do and all that, you still always should be a joy to work with. Like, nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to work with an asshole. Like, you want, no matter who you work with, no, so no matter what their quality of their work is, if you're not a nice person, people won't want to work with you.
1: Yeah, I would say that you need to end every collaboration with a sort of peaceful yeah, which is not very easy because, of course, exhibitions add something that often in a short time and has a clear deadline where the things need to open to the public and there is often a lot of work. It puts people under stress and they are very tired at the end and so on. Plus, it's something that it's not only professional, but it's emotional right? because the people are realizing themselves. They are not, I, mean, I, I think, really all the artists I know are not doing it for the money. They're doing it to be in the history. They're doing it for themselves. Right? They would exchange all the money for more opportunities and <laughs> for more visibility and so on. Right? Really, I would say almost everybody, and even if it, there is maybe a period that they, to make it for the money, they will always miss the sort of fame at the end. This is the main thing. So it's again, it's not a question of professional, it's a question of emotion. So it also can be very explosive. It's not easy. Yeah, I think it also needs to have a certain mind setting, you know, to be able to understand that. Because most of other people are not working like that. They are going to the work, they are doing it professionally, they may like it, they may love it, and so they may be passionate about it, but it's still not the same. You know? And this is also what you very often see in large institutions, that the people that are from the supportive position, you know, they think the artists are crazy, yeah? of course. I mean, of course, b- even many people think artists are crazy, but they're not crazy. They're just extremely focused, and they're extremely involved in what they're doing, yeah? because for them it is everything. But again, this of course means that it may not be easy, and that even at the end, you need to sort of find peace, and that everything needs to be great because we will work with these people again. You know? The network is still not as big. You will meet the people again and so on. So it is important to, like not to be explosive and to, to always you know, keep the things running that you can still speak together and be happy about the result of your work. Indeed. So
0: I'm interested still about like the role of curating these days so like your job is a very unique job there are not a lot of institutional curators really like in the world you know in comparison to like insurance salespeople, whatever like you you have a very niche thing that you do and i think it's great i think it's worthwhile and it's necessary but you you're behind this cr- sort of this curtain, and and a lot of us out in the world don't really know what it is that you you do uh, with you know with your job basically. Like so, you know, your role. Of course, you said eighty percent paperwork, <laughs> probably ten ten percent meetings. <laughs> But like when you get to the stuff that you really got into the industry for like what is it that you still get the opportunity to do do you go out and do studio visits do you go to exhibitions like how do you keep connected with what's going on when you actually have so many other responsibilities
1: Yeah of course I mean I used to work in the newspaper and we were always wondering how they were working the journalists when there were no computers, what they were doing, really. Because, <laughs> of course, we just work on the computer all the time nowadays. But uh, yes, but less. It's, that that's exactly the problem of the time and of the quantification, that it is sort of expected when you are at this position that you already have all the knowledge and you already know all the people. Eh? And even very often for the actual implementation of the project, like when we did this Kurt Gebauer, we did it in seven months, and it's a project that should probably take like two or three years because I was you need say, to that's get fast. Yeah, you need to get to know, and there is 220 works on display. So again, just to kind of you know to get an idea, you need to really work very closely with the artist You need to get to know all the works to be able to select the representative ones, and so on and so on. But yes, I do have some time. Of course, I am trying at least, or I am still quite often also being invited to go to the sort of densified presentations of art as it's Venice Biennale or Art Basel Art Fair, because you can see a lot in a short time there. But again, it's not so much about anymore seeing a lot, but just having a kind of idea. Because if I go to Venice Biennale, for example, last year, I know all the artists that are exhibited there already. I know there, at least I know the names. I have a kind of vague idea of what they're doing, where they're from. So I'm just more kind of precising my idea of what is the state of the art at this moment. Uh, so that's why I'm also going to see, of course, institutional exhibitions, but I'm also following the programs of the museum just by show, seeing what they're showing, actually, because I don't need to sometimes specifically go to see that exhibition because I already know the artists work well. Or I'm if I'm going, then I'm just looking how they are approaching the exhibition, what comes to architecture, what comes to the division, to chapters or no chapters, to supporting materials, etc., etc. Yeah. So it is really more the, to, to just follow of the changes. Yeah. I think it's the same if you are a, a researcher in any field. I studied anthropology and I also, I mean, aside other things, and I remember my teachers, they needed just to kind of read quickly a lot of articles in the anthropological, in the main anthropological journals to kind of keep track on what's going on. Yeah? It would be a kind of diagonal reading, you know, very fast reading, just to have an idea of what is the... And so it's a bit like that in this side. And then, of course, I need to focus on some artists that I'm preparing projects, and then I need to go very deep. Yeah? But I don't have so much time of doing studio visits anymore.
0: No. Okay. When it comes to it doing your exhibition, so let's say you have an exhibition it has been approved by the board, there's money, all the kind of stuff, so all in line and all that. Do you, as the curator, do the design of it? So like, I'm thinking like down to like wall colors and placements of pieces and stuff so like, what part of what that role is yours and what part potentially goes to like the designers or some other pr- people on your team?
1: It depends on the project and on the space. In the previous projects, I was pretty much the architect as well. And I always collaborated with more or less the same graphic design studio that I like and I like to work with. In the National Gallery, is more like in a the theater in the sense that you have a director, you have the actors, but you have also someone who does the stage set, the lightning, and so on. And each of these people should have a sort of autonomy. Uh, they are all artistic professions. So in a sense, you should not just tell them what to do, but you should let them to sort of decide uh, within some constraints and limits. And this is also why it can be more difficult to work on the large scale, because the artist may not like the thing that the architect proposed, but I think that actually it is a sort of higher level of civilization of course more people works on it can also be much better because it's good that it's not one person who is doing all but each of the people has their own opinion also own vision of the exhibition and their artwork so it's in I'm trying not to do that, I'm not doing the architecture for example, even though I am really a lot thinking in time. I am not doing exhibitions by putting images, but I'm really imagining and placing the works in space. But I'm really trying to keep some, and to, to let some autonomy to the architect, to the graphic designer, to the others, because it can actually finally be better. So let's say that more or less, I am placing the pieces with the artist. I'm writing all the texts, of course, and sort of supervising the overall art direction, whether it be the graphic design or the PR or choosing images for the posters. Or again, in discussion, of course, with the department and so. So, so sort of art director and all the content, what comes to text providing.
0: Okay, you just brought up t- writing text, and like I'm, I'm a huge. Um I have a huge problem with writing text I'm horrible at it so I'm always looking for tips and tricks so like if you had to give some advice to a younger curator and or a younger artist about how to really sort of craft a well done let's say artist statement or something like that what what kind of tricks do you do what kind of techniques do you try to work through
1: I worked at the newspaper when I was young before I started to work as a curator which was a good school because when you're a journalist and I work at a daily newspaper yeah, so every day you need to write the newspaper again you're you're absolutely there's absolutely not any consideration that you would even one second think about how you're writing all the work of the journalist is just to gather the information and to put them in a text needs to be kind of spontaneous. There's absolutely no time to rewrite or, or rethink it. It's just natural. Eh? So it's, of course, very, it's a huge pressure, especially working in the daily newspaper, exactly because every day you're starting from a scratch. Not a lot of people manage more than one or two years because it's, it's a sort of, you know, then you move on to the magazines or you move on to be an editor. But really the people who are writing the articles, you don't manage to do this for a long time. So this kind of learned me to write without thinking actually, but of, of course to be able to write without thinking that people can also understand that. Yeah? And then I think it's really mainly about the quantity. Again, it's a sort of muscle. If you're, if you're using it, it's easy. If you're not using it, it gets hard. Yeah? Since I mean, I myself still have problems to understand how can someone write a 1,000 pages book or something like that. Yeah? I'm not on this level yet. It would take me enormous time, but, but I can also imagine that if you really do it all your life, then it becomes very easy. And then maybe the advice is like try to use as concrete words as possible, not use the abstract blah, blah. If you look at any kind of art magazines and you, you read them, you will see how repetitive the way it's being written, especially in English, is. How, for example, the triads are being used, like three words after each other, purity, virginity, I don't know, something, you know, this kind of, and and how many, there is like five or six other mechanisms as you're writing about art that are always the same and repeating themselves. So really, like, instead of speaking generally, try to speak about the concrete things of an artwork, what it means. Yeah, what the concrete properties and attributes of that artwork can mean rather than some very general words.
0: That's great. Okay, along that line. For you in your practice of writing these texts that you do, how often how many rewrites do you have to do? So you make a like you do a rough draft, you do your first down on paper, and then how many times do you have to rewrite it? And do you do you, who writes for a living more or less, do you also like hand it off to other people to get some other criticisms, some other feedbacks before it's finalized?
1: Depends on the text. Some texts I write and I just read it the day after in the morning and I send. Some texts I rewrite more. Some texts I also work with an editor for a book and so on. But I think that like, if you manage to gather your thoughts well, then you should just write it down because if you start too much to touch the text you can also lose the rhythm and the sort of spontaneity of it Uh
0: yeah you can overwork it
1: you can overwork it but again of course it really depends on which kind of text if I have an opening text for an exhibition where I have two paragraphs and I need to really say everything there and needs to be super good then it's something else those two paragraphs need to be worked Each word needs to have a reason to be there. But if you're writing a larger text for a book, 15 norm, 20 norm pages, that you can just, you know, reread several times and do some corrections and go on.
0: You also talked earlier on about like the speed of our society, how things are going so fast and things like this. What do you think about the arts and social media and the arts and like online art space, you know, sort of online sales, online exhibitions, all these different kinds of things that are sort of progressing towards that direction?
1: For sure, it changed a lot the face of art, but it didn't change it entirely. Eh? When it was the first coming of the generation of artists working online, a lot of people were predicting all the art will move online, etc. And it didn't happen. So I would say that it's more extension of the reality that still remains reality. I mean, the art, what matters in the art, it's still the walls, the sort of hard drive, you know, the museums and so on. And this does not entirely overlap with the attention you get online. Yeah. Not such a long time ago, we had this so-called post-internet generation. That was a whole generation of artists that really sort of changed the face of their work for it to be looking better on photographs. Yeah. Because of course we know that you know, the, most of the art we see, we see them on pictures. So, or let's say you can reach much wider publics via images than with the real exhibition. But the attention they get on their social media and so on was not immediately transformed into a commercial success, into a exhibitions in the museum. It does not go exactly. There is some sort of transformation. Right? So it happened, but not, it, let's say, you cannot just fold it and it would be the same. It's not the same. I still believe in the, in the reality. I mean, this is... And still, again, what you see that is happening is mainly staging exhibitions and making artworks in real and then transforming them into some documentation. Right? But the reality still exists. It's just that you know, it's not going entirely virtual.
0: Oh, yeah. I had a conversation with a curator where we were talking about having, as a, like an artist, having an exhibition these days, uh, let's say in a gallery, that while the attendees at the gallery are great and the the, ex- the exhibition is great, to a certain extent, because of the fact that of social media and things like this, most of the benefits that will come from the exhibition will be the documentation, which will then be put on their website or on their social media, because that's going to reach a much larger audience.
1: Yes, but this is, of course, for small galleries or for commercial galleries, where they don't really or not entirely depend on the actual people. As in ticket National sales. Gallery, of course, we are, yeah, but not even on ticket sales, but also on attendance in a frame that we need to also give those numbers to the Minister of Culture that funds us, and so on. And if nobody will come to our exhibition, they most probably won't give out the money while if we have a lot of people coming and so on. But I mean, it helps definitely, it helps. But I would also say that as it's 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 a sort of lubricant that again accelerates the world system and make, again, as it allows people to network, we are more transnational, let's say, and so on. So it also leads to kind of deeper and further specialization. eh? Young artists are, you know, of course, nowadays connected with other artists who may live on the other side of the world, but are doing something very specific as they do. eh? But this also leads to a kind of enclosure. Uh, in a sense, that's the paradox of it, that it gets even more and more specialized and there is like so little stylistic changes or little waves that nobody really can perceive, only the people who are kind of seeing them real-time happening on the social media. Uh, so it gets even further from from the white public, while contradictory, the social media, of course, were made for the masses.
0: Oh, no, social media ends up just being a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you like a certain kind of work, you will follow people and befriend people who do this, some the generally similar works. And so the curation of your feed ends up being, well, what you are seeing more of what you already like.
1: Yes, but, I, but again, I, as I was already active when like it all kind of started, I also know people that it helped a lot, also when the blogs arrived, like specialized blogs. I remember WeWork that doesn't exist anymore, which I know artists that really got exhibitions because their work was published there. Because at a certain point, so many people were watching it because it was a kind of easy source material, of course. But, But everything, nothing really lasts. Everything gets oversaturated very quickly. Uh, people are uh, and again as nowadays Instagram can be you know the things that can help some artists again the, there's such a amount of content we're so overwhelmed with content that it brings the inflation of it also because again so more and more you just want to already get a kind of selection from a selection from a selection because you just don't have the capacity to go through all that
0: well I feel like there's also a little bit of pressure to simply be producing more so, like, whether it's artwork as an artist myself, or like for you as a, as a running an institution, like you need to run more get more exhibitions. Like, if I feel like the sheer volume of what people is beginning to expect of creators to create is rising and rising exponentially.
1: Because everything is like that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 the logic of our time, no. Like you increase production, that's all we know. Yeah? In ev- any kind of field you work, the increase of production. If you look on the amount of the academic articles written, written, it's also exponential, the growth. Nobody reads those things. Yeah? They're just doing them because they have the citation systems that they get money because and so on. We, so everywhere in our society, we don't know any other way than the growth. Yeah? We don't have any kind of stabilization. And of course, if you're working with all the older artists, like 80 or 90 years old, and you look at the work they did, you look at their portfolios and their CVs and so on, you see that they were doing one exhibition per year, one exhibition every two years. It was totally okay, it was the normal rhythm. Nowadays, my students, if they're not showing at least like every three months, they feel like they are not successful. And then again, the paradox that I see at some artists is also that even if you're doing something material, you have nowhere to store it because, of course, again, the production is so large that you then need to pay some space where to store it, and this space nowadays in large cities, of course, is very expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And you see artists who are 35, my age, 40, who already could have a retrospective because they did so much work in the 15 years that is comparable to those 80, 90 years old artists because the rhythm was much slower.
0: Right, but I mean, but is this good or bad?
1: I mean, it, it's again, it's complicated. Of course, one would say it's bad, right? I mean, but but how, how to get out of it? We don't know how to get out of it, yeah? Like, it's the rule in all the museums, it's you do more, it's more success, of course, yeah? That somehow it's alive, people. We are attracted by it. We want to live in big cities which are dense in population, which are pulsating. Everything is happening on every meter. You see, like we're kind of attracted by that. So I don't know what is the way out of it.
0: I don't know either. But that's why this podcast is called The Wise Fool. Like, I, I don't <laughs> know the answers to everything for sure. This has been marvelous. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you as well.